Hey everyone, welcome back. Now this is just a really quick intro from me today because I actually recorded this episode with the lovely Steph from The Dietologist over on her podcast, Fertility Friendly Food. Um, We talked all about gestational diabetes, so obviously I thought that it would be highly relevant to share here and you would really enjoy listening to it. So enjoy. I don't think you really need to hear too much else from me today. But I really hope that you enjoy this episode. And as always, please let me know what you think. I would love, love, love so much if you could leave me a review. If you have been enjoying these episodes, it would just mean the world to me. Um, Or you can go and DM me over on Instagram at nutrition.by.helena and tell me what you think. I would love to hear how you're finding the podcast. But yeah, enjoy this episode and we'll speak soon. Friendly Food, the podcast. My name is Stephanie Vlakis, and I'm an expert certified fertility dietitian and nutritionist and founder of The Dietologist, a multiple award-winning virtual fertility and pregnancy nutrition clinic serving thousands from around the world. And of course, the host of this pod, Fertility Friendly Food. This podcast is dedicated to all things health and nutrition in the world of fertility, reproductive health, and pregnancy. Each week, I bring you practical snack-sized episodes to help improve your lifestyle on your trying-to-conceive journey, alongside guest expert interviews to help inspire you to learn and grow whilst you grow your family. Back to another episode of Fertility Friendly Food, the podcast. Today's episode is all about gestational diabetes, or GD for short, which can affect around 20% of all pregnant women. And whilst it can be really manageable, increasingly I'm seeing people who are feeling fearful about the potential of getting a diagnosis of GD and how that may change the way that their pregnancy looks. And whilst there is certainly an element of grief of what you thought your pregnancy may have looked like and potentially your birthing options, many people I interact with feel as though it is an opportunity to focus on their diet and lifestyle more so than what they potentially would have without that diagnosis of GD. And additionally, they learn how to eat well to support themselves postpartum and reduce their future risk of developing GD again in subsequent pregnancies and type 2 diabetes in the long run as well. So let's talk about it as I'm getting more and more questions about GD. Now, we usually answer a question from the community each week, but this episode is a long one, so I have decided to pop those in other episodes this time around. But don't forget, you can leave us a question anytime. The link is in the podcast show notes, a quick 30-second form to complete, and you can submit your question to be answered on air in a more extended format. So do go and fill that in. Now, without any further ado, I would love to introduce our guest for this episode, Helena McDonald, accredited practicing dietitian, a gestational diabetes dietitian who practices online from Victoria, Australia. And she's also the host of the podcast, Gestational Diabetes Club. You can check out her Instagram as well, which is at nutrition. Welcome, Helena, to Fertility Friendly Food, the podcast. So thrilled to have you here. Tell us a bit more about who you are and what you do. 
Thank you so much, Steph. I'm so excited to be on this podcast. Like I was just saying to you before we started recording, I couldn't be more thrilled to be here. I feel like I am obsessed with your podcast myself. So it's really a privilege to be able to be interviewed on here. So thank you for having me. A little bit about me. So I am a dietitian and nutritionist and I specialize in gestational diabetes. And I really like focusing on the mum, I suppose, as a way to explain what I do, because I know that a lot of the focus goes on to women's babies, which of course is very relevant in the pregnancy and gestational diabetes space. But I really like to focus on the mum and make sure that they are feeling really in control of their health and confident in their body and understanding what to eat to balance their blood sugar. And so I do a lot of work around yeah, supporting women through that gestational diabetes journey and beyond. I also love working with women who are in the postpartum phase to make sure that the food that they're eating is really working for them, giving them the best outcomes in terms of their blood sugar and getting the best outcomes for their baby's development too, whilst maintaining their own health. And like I said before, helping them feel really confident and in control of their own health and well-being too. So I hope that makes sense about what I do. Yeah, absolutely. I love what you do. Let's rewind. What is gestational diabetes? Great question. And I think that it's kind of a hard one to answer in a short way. I've been workshopping like how to best, how to best describe this in a way that's really concise, because I know it's a really common question. Like you get diagnosed with GD, which I'm, I'll refer to it as GD because it's just a mouthful to say gestational diabetes every time. But yeah, you want just a really quick explanation. And I suppose that the easiest way to explain it is that it's having high blood sugar during pregnancy. And obviously there's a whole lot that goes into that physiologically, but at the crux of it, it's having blood sugar that is considered too high that puts you and your baby at risk of developing some poorer outcomes around birth and in the longer term. And so if we do go a little bit more into what's happening in your body, it's essentially because pregnancy like induces this insulin resistant state in the body. And this happens to everybody, not just people who develop GD. And the reason for that is because like biologically, it makes sense when we're pregnant, we need to be transferring more nutrients over to the baby. So the hormones coming out of the placenta they can block the action of our own insulin, which means that our blood sugar stays a bit higher so that more can be shunted through to the placenta to make sure the baby's getting enough nutrients for growth. And I'm realizing as I'm talking that I might need to take a few steps back there to even explain what things like insulin are, because that can be confusing as well when you're first coming into hearing about diabetes and gestational diabetes and all of that. So do you want me to go into that now? Yeah. Yeah, I reckon. Uh, we do have a previous potty episode about insulin resistance, which I'll link for people in the show notes too, because if you know me, I love an analogy. So you probably yeah. have your own analogy, but I do find that having some kind of analogy for all this physiology is really Absolutely. helpful. So yeah, let's dive into what insulin does in the body and how it works. Yes. And I'm not actually sure if this is the same analogy that you use. I know that you like to talk about like the key and the car, like the car key. I use just like a kind of a key and a lock analogy. So if you think about normally what happens when we eat food and particularly when we eat carbohydrates. So let's say you're eating a banana. And also I just want to take one more step back and preface this by saying that 
all carbohydrates are broken down into sugar in our body. So it doesn't matter if you're eating like a really dense whole grain seeded piece of bread or if you're eating a lolly snake, both of those things are going to be broken down into sugar into your body. And we can use the words sugar and glucose interchangeably as well. And obviously like, you know, there's different nutrients and rates of breakdown and things like that that go along with what you're eating. But just for ease, just remember that all carbohydrates are broken down into sugar in the body. So we're eating something that contains carbohydrate. Let's just say it's a banana. When that's ingested, we break it down into different little sugar molecules. And then the sugar goes into our bloodstream. But it's not very useful to us there. So we need that sugar to be fueling things like our muscles and our brain that rely on having that sugar to function. But our body can't get it out of the bloodstream and into those cells where it belongs without some help. So it's the job of our pancreas, which is another organ, to release a hormone called insulin in response to that sugar coming into our bloodstream. And we can think about insulin like a key that unlocks doors because the sugar can't get out of the bloodstream and into those cells because they're all locked. So we need to be producing the insulin that acts like a key to come into the blood, grab that sugar molecule and take it over to the cell where it can unlock it and it can help the sugar get into the cell and do what it needs to do to function our day-to-day life, right? So when we have insulin resistance, a few things could be happening. It could mean that those keys are faulty. So that insulin coming out of the placenta isn't working very well. So it's coming to grab the sugar and take it out of the bloodstream And it's trying to open the door, like it's trying to open the locks on those cells, but it's not working well. It's like if you've ever had like one of those really old keys and you're trying for ages to try and open a door, it's just not happening. That can be going on with your insulin. So the actual insulin isn't working very well. Or the lock can be faulty. Like maybe the lock's a little bit jammed. And so you're trying to open it with the keys, nothing wrong with the key, but the lock's really hard to open for some reason. Or it can mean that the plus the pancreas just isn't producing very much of those keys. So we're not getting enough out to the bloodstream to be able to take the sugar or enough sugar out of the bloodstream effectively. So hopefully that didn't go over your head, but what I'm getting at there is that there is a few different ways that insulin resistance can present. And so it can be an issue with the actual insulin not working very well, the receptors on those cells not working very well and not letting the insulin do its job or over time. And what can happen for some people during pregnancy is that the pancreas's cells that usually produce that insulin, they kind of get worn out a bit is the simplest way to put it. And so then they're not producing enough insulin to be able to support that blood sugar getting out of the bloodstream and into the cells where it belongs. So in pregnancy, the hormones being released from the placenta seem to block the action of our insulin, meaning that it is harder for the sugar to be getting out of the bloodstream. And that's a good thing in terms of helping the baby's growth. But for some people, the pancreas can't keep up with the demand of more insulin. And so we get those problematic high blood sugar levels. And I just want to make a quick note that like during pregnancy, 
your insulin demand multiplies by two to three times by the end of your pregnancy. So it's quite significant that you need to be producing like triple the amount of insulin. And so if you already had any issues with underlying insulin resistance or, you know, some other reason that you developed GD, Mm -hmm. it makes sense if your pancreas just can't keep up. And some, Yeah. yeah, some people don't have the same response, I suppose, the beneficial adaptations during pregnancy that mean that some people are fine and some people not fine. So in a nutshell, that's what's going on in the body when we talk about insulin resistance and how that can show up sometimes in pregnancy. So does that answer the question? Okay. It does. You have done a fabulous job because it is so complex, especially to explain without a diagram because I love a draw on the Zoom. Or or a little diagram. So like explaining it just audio is quite challenging, but I think you did a great job. Thanks. I think the biggest takeaway that I got from that thinking preconceptionally is how frequently insulin resistance is missed in preconception and that it isn't often part of standard tests if you're not at risk of it. And as a result, people fly under the radar and then they're like, surprise, surprise, 26, 28 weeks, they go and do their two-hour oral glucose tolerance test and bada-bing, bada-boom, they have GD and they're like, oh, my God, they've got the shock of their life, right? But potentially if we track that back, you know, we, things could have been potentially missed from before. So I think good preconception and pregnancy care comes into the GD equation, not just picking up that third trimester management as well, which we can talk about another time. But Who is at risk of developing GD? Great question. And also you're so right that I totally agree that if you want to be minimizing your risk of gestational diabetes as much as is within your control, you've got to start like months and months in advance of pregnancy and getting that diagnosis. It's a bit too late when you've suddenly got GD to try and reverse insulin resistance. I mean, you can certainly continue working on it but it's ideal if you can be optimizing your diet beforehand. But in terms of who is at risk, then there's a few different population groups. So the biggest risk factor seems to be people who have had a previous pregnancy with gestational diabetes. And I suppose that kind of is self-explanatory. Like if you've had it once, then you clearly had some sort of risk factor that probably means you're going to get it again. And similarly, if you've had a previous big baby and big is classified as like greater than four kilos, and that potentially could point to an undiagnosed gestational diabetes as well. So there are a couple of the big risk factors. There's a lot of big risk factors, actually. I shouldn't say that they're the only two. So so a couple of the major risk factors are having previous gestational diabetes in a pregnancy. And so that kind of indicates that you are going to get it again because you've still got the same risk factors or having a big baby, so greater than four kilos, which might have pointed to an undiagnosed gestational diabetes diagnosis. Some other really big risk factors, things like your ethnicity, which is obviously a really unmodifiable risk factor. And we do know that people from backgrounds like Asian, Polynesian, South Asian, Southeast Asian, Middle Eastern, Hispanic, Aboriginal Australian, like there's a lot of different ethnicities that are considered higher risk. And I suppose that comes down to genetic factors. And whilst we're thinking about genetic factors, there's also been some work and research done in the space around like your specific like genetic sequences. So there's not a huge amount of research there, but this is, and this is obviously something that you can't really pick up on or get tested for like in a 
it's not something that's readily available to be tested for, but it seems like there's some crossover between specific like genetic sequences that predispose somebody to like type 2 diabetes and some of those similar sequences associated with gestational diabetes. And that ties in with like if you've got a family history of type 2 diabetes or gestational diabetes, so like your mum or your sister or somebody who's closely related to you had GD, then it's more likely that you will get it as well. Older women, so greater than 40 years old, are considered higher risk for developing gestational diabetes. And there's some other lifestyle factors as well. So if you, you know, I don't ever really like to say like if you have a poor diet because that's super subjective. But if you're somebody who relies on heavily processed foods and you don't move your body very much and, you know, you haven't been taking care of your health for whatever reason, there's no judgment associated with that because, you know, there's all sorts of reasons you might not be able to participate in physical activity or eat as well as you would like to, all those sorts of things. But that can also predispose you to having underlying insulin resistance, so your diet quality pre-pregnancy. Similarly, your body weight, and I would say that's probably more so related to the lifestyle factors that are associated with the size that your body is, as opposed to like the actual weight itself. But we do know that having excess fat stores can increase insulin resistance, and so that can also increase your risk of having GD. But again, like I like to tread very lightly when talking about weight because as much as people like to say that that's a modifiable factor and sometimes it is, sometimes it's not. Sometimes that can be something that's also outside of your control to some extent, what your body weight naturally sits at. And there's some other bits and pieces. So for example, if you have PCOS, that is usually associated with insulin resistance too. And so that is likely to be exacerbated during pregnancy and show up as GD. And then there's things like being on certain medications. So if you're on steroids, for example, that tends to raise blood sugar and that will also show up as GD in a lot of cases too that would need management. So there's quite a few things that can put somebody at risk of getting GD. And yeah, like it, it makes sense that with, there's a fairly high rate of people with GD. I think it's about 15 to 20% of pregnancies in Australia. So you're definitely not alone. And if you fall into one of those categories, it might help with a little bit of like reassurance or clarification around like why you might have developed it instead of it being such a big shock. I mean, it's probably still a big shock, but give you a little bit of understanding of what led to that diagnosis. Yeah, absolutely. I think people are often really shocked and grieve, I think, to a degree. I, I don't think that's too dramatic to say what they thought would have been the rest of their pregnancy. It is a burden to worry about your diet, worry about your exercise, worry about your blood sugar levels. I think it's manageable, it's doable, and there's lots of incredible people who can help you to achieve that. But it's normal. It's normal to receive that information and go, yeah, it sucks. Yeah, you're so you're so right in saying that there's that grief aspect to it because I see that so much where it is like you probably get to your third trimester, you think, oh, great, like all of that nausea and everything has started to fall away, hopefully for some people, and you're looking forward to just being able to enjoy the remainder of your pregnancy and feel really excited and do all the things like prepping for a new baby and then you get hit with this diagnosis or particularly if there's, you know, somebody who 
might fit into like your target demographic as well who's having a lot of fertility struggles. I see this commonly too, especially if it's something like PCOS where you've had a really long fertility journey and that's been hard and then you finally get pregnant and then you hit with a GD diagnosis as well. It can just feel like such a punch in the guts and that's just so difficult. And as well, if you don't fall into any of those categories, then it can be so confusing if you're like, well, what Mm. do you mean? I don't have any of those risk factors. Like why have I got this? And, I mean, the short answer to that is that sometimes we just don't know. (laughs) There's some other things we can talk about if you want to go into it, but, you know, we still don't have all of the answers as to why some people do develop GD and some people don't. Yeah, well, that was going to be my next question. What about the people that, you know, they're in their 20s or 30s, they're not from an ethnic background that they know of, that would be at high risk, they've been tested for insulin resistance, they don't have PCOS, they're not carrying any excess body weight, they've got a great diet and lifestyle, and then they have GD. They're the ones that are like, what is going on? And is it just bogus? Like, is this test just showing it up because it wants me to freak out? Like, what is going on there? I know we're not going to have all the answers, but perhaps some theories or hypotheses from scientists to date would be cool to discuss. Yeah, it's such an interesting question. And, you know, this, knowing that you would potentially ask me about this, I went and did a little bit more digging through the research to see exactly what I could uncover because I just felt like I don't really have a good answer for this, that sometimes we just don't know. And like I said, the short answer is that we don't have all of the answers yet. But a few things that I did come up with. So like I was saying before, like there could be some genetic aspects to it. So again, like we can't really test for this, but you might have a genetic sequence that just predisposes you to something like GD. And that is unrelated to anything you're doing in terms of your diet or your lifestyle or whatever. And again, like you can't really test for it, just something that happens to be in your genetic makeup that means that you're more likely to develop it than somebody else. There could be some other factor that we don't really know about yet. And again, we can't really test for. So there is research to say that people who have GD have a altered gut microbiome compared to other people without GD, I'd be very hesitant and cautious around drawing like particular conclusions about that because it's an association at this point. We can't say like, oh, you've got an altered gut microbiome, so therefore you're going to develop like gestational diabetes. And it might well be that having GD causes the altered, like the altered gut microbiome or, you know, the relationship is probably much more complex than we know about yet, but something like that could potentially be a factor. It could be if I know you said that some people might have had insulin resistance tested for and detected already or not detected, but if you haven't done any, you know, testing around that, then there could just be underlying insulin resistance that you don't know about. And, It's often said in certain circles that pregnancy is like the ultimate stress test. And so whatever really like was going to come up in later life is going to show up during pregnancy. And so gestational diabetes is a pretty perfect example of that. So potentially you did have some underlying insulin resistance for whatever reason. Again, that can be genetic. You didn't know about it. And so then pregnancy where does induce that insulin resistant environment meant that your body just couldn't keep up and like looking into the research a little bit further around that kind of thing it seems like as I was saying before you need about two to three times amount of insulin during pregnancy as you would in normal life 
And what normally happens is that the pancreas's beta cells, which are the cells that produce insulin, they multiply and they get bigger. But for some people, that just doesn't happen. And so there could be some just genetic reason that that doesn't happen. And so therefore, you're not able to keep up with that demand. There could also be something a bit random, like another condition called MODI, which is mature onset diabetes of the young, which is super rare and seems to happen in like a minuscule population group. But that's a variation genetically, again, where your blood sugar just runs higher and it doesn't cause any negative outcomes or anything like that. You just have a different like baseline for what is normal for you. So for somebody else, the fasting blood sugar might need to be five, but for you, it might need to be like six because you just, your body runs like that and there's no risk factors or whatever. And that's again, like something that's not really commonly tested for. But maybe something like that is you or there could be, again, something pretty random that we didn't necessarily tie to the diagnosis, something like a vitamin D deficiency or some other nutrient deficiency that we don't know about, who knows, like that, you know, could just be something that's going on for you and doesn't necessarily get tied to that diagnosis, but maybe it played a part. So I feel like there's so many things that it could be and these are all just kind of drawing at strings, but I don't know if that's a saying, actually, but all things that are... Clutching at straws is what... (laughs) Clutching at straws. (laughs) That's the one that could impact your risk of being diagnosed, but it's really hard and it can feel really hard when you don't have that closure. But just know that, you know, there's a lot we still don't know about GD and you haven't done anything wrong. And the main driver... I don't think I mentioned, and I definitely should have already mentioned, the main driver of this diagnosis is hormones by like produced by the placenta. And as your baby's growing, those hormones are increasing. And so they are blocking that action of your insulin. And so it's not your fault. It's your hormones. Those cheeky pregnancy hormones. Yeah. So keep that in mind. It's you don't have to blame yourself no matter what your factors were or weren't. How is GD tested for? Because many know this already, but there is just this dread that pregnant women have about their GD death of drinking the drink, you know? So step us through what the test is and when it typically is conducted during the pregnancy. Totally. So it is called the oral glucose tolerance test. And yeah, everybody kind of knows about it. It's like, yeah, you've got to drink a really gross drink. I've never tried it. So I don't know if it's gross or if it's nice, might be delicious. Who knows? But anyway, you've got to drink that at about 24 to 28 weeks. Somewhere in that time frame is the usual time point where you'll be diagnosed. And also, I just want to mention that if you are an international listener, this might be different for you. I know there is a different two-step process to diagnosis in the US, for example. So I'm just going to refer to our diagnostic process in Australia, where we just use one test. So at around 24 to 28 weeks, we do the oral glucose tolerance test. And basically, you have to fast, then go into the clinic or wherever, the pathology lab, drink a drink that has got 75 grams of sugar in it, essentially. Hopefully they refrigerate it for you so it goes down a bit easier. And hopefully you don't vomit it straight up again because that would be inaccurate. But if you keep it down, they will have tested your blood before you drink that so that they can get an idea of your baseline blood sugar. 
Then you take on this massive amount of sugar and then they test your blood again one hour after drinking that to see how your body has responded. And then they test your blood again at two hours after drinking that so that they can see if your blood sugar comes back down to a normal-ish level. So there's cutoffs for each time point there. And if any of them are higher than the thresholds, then like even by 0.1, then you'll be diagnosed with gestational diabetes. And during that whole like two hour process, you can't be exercising or eating anything. I think you can drink water, but that's about it because we really just wanted to see exactly how your body handles that glucose load, which is more than you'd probably have like, you know, in a standard meal or whatever, but it's a test environment to see what how your blood sugar responds. So there's a bit of criticism about you know, that it's not really how much sugar people would be eating day to day, but it's not really the point. The point is to see like in that testing environment, what happens, because that's what we've got research on to know that if any of those levels are elevated, then that's associated with poorer outcomes during your pregnancy and for you and for your baby. And you touched on this before as well. And I just really want to highlight that even if you're diagnosed and your number is like a tiny bit over, please don't think that it's a misdiagnosis. I see that all the time on, you know, Facebook groups and Reddit threads and all that kind of place where people are like, oh, I feel like I was just misdiagnosed. I was only a tiny bit over. Like, absolutely not. Like, just accept the diagnosis. It sucks. Cry about it. Get all of the feelings out and the grief out that you need to. And those feelings are so valid. But at the end of the day, it is so much better to have that diagnosis and understand what's going on inside your body and be able to manage it. And best case scenario, you're testing your blood sugar. It's annoying. You have to prick your fingers, but you've got perfect levels the whole time and you don't have to worry about it. That would be best case scenario. Worst case scenario is things get progressively more challenging. Your blood sugars are not always perfect and you need to be modifying your diet or taking medication or insulin or whatever it is, which is... Fab, because then you're able to know that you're doing the right thing and keeping you and your baby safe during your pregnancy. Because imagine if you did just think, oh, it's a misdiagnosis, I'm not going to worry about testing, not going to worry about managing this in any way. And then you don't know what's going on with your blood sugar for the rest of your pregnancy. And then, you know, things weren't great. I think that that would just be such a horrific scenario to not have known and not have been able to manage it than to just accept the diagnosis and hopefully it's smooth sailing for you. I hope that makes sense. Yeah, because that's another common question. People trying to like read the test, like trying to eat a certain way before the test to get a negative result. And I'm just like, don't do that because if you get a false negative, which means you really do have gestational diabetes, but whatever you did, quote unquote, rig the test, guess what the consequences of unmanaged GD, they're to you and your baby and your future long-term health of your potential future risk of having type 2 diabetes. So it's not the right way to approach it. Yes, it's a big load, but like I always try and tell people when they're going for two-hour OGTTs before, during, after pregnancy, is the whole idea is we've got to put the system under pressure. We need to see how it performs under pressure, not when you're drinking your cup of coffee and you're having a boiled egg. That's not going to do it for us. That might be your normal, fine, but, like, we need to actually see what happens under pressure. And, yes, it's like drinking two Cokes and it's a lot of sugar and it's okay. Baby will do a happy dance and... 
It's just one time only. It's all right. So typically that test is occurring between 26 to 28 weeks and then less often sometimes we order an early test if you're at high risk, so sometimes 14 weeks. So that's important to keep in mind. Or even or earlier, earlier yeah, I've had a couple people. of people yeah. get diagnosed at like eight, nine weeks pregnant. Yeah. yeah. And that's rough. Long road. Looking at a good few months ahead of you, a lot of months ahead of you. But yeah, no, I, I just want to say like I completely agree on like please don't try and rig the test like or anything like that. I, I like to say, you know, I get asked quite a lot, I suppose, like what should I eat in the lead up to my test? Like should I change my diet? Like how can I avoid this diagnosis? I'm like please don't change anything. Like unless you are going to continue eating the way that you're changing your diet to when you're thinking about changing your diet in the lead up to the test, if you're going to continue eating that way for the rest of your pregnancy and ideally the rest of your life, then absolutely go for it. But if you're thinking that you're just going to eat, quote unquote, really healthy, really clean in the lead up to avoid this diagnosis, then you're going to go right back to what you were doing before, whatever that may be, then it's really not the right approach because we just do not want to miss that diagnosis whatsoever. And I also get nervous about what people's perceptions of being really healthy and trying to change your diet in the lead up to that test might look like because often it's totally cutting out carbs and things like that, which again is really not the right approach for even the management of GD. So please don't try and rig anything. Please don't restrict your diet in any way. You know, I'm all for wanting to change your diet in a positive way and make some really healthy improvements, but it's just, it's not the time to try and rig the test. Like certainly mm. do it if you continue with it. I suppose, yeah, I, I'm talking in circles. Like do it if you're going to continue with it and you're going to be making some really positive changes, but not if you're doing it simply to, you know, get some better looking numbers. And that's it's not even space that that's going to work anyway. Like it's not, yeah. <laughs> so don't, don't do that. Don't bother. All right, let's shift into action mode. What, and like, please be as top line as possible because obviously we like do multiple consultations when it comes to managing (laughs) GD. But as a dietitian, what are some of those key dietary and lifestyle principles? Like if someone comes to you and says, hey, Helena, just been diagnosed with GD. I don't know where to start with my diet. What are your top kind of three things that you start to think about? Mm -hmm. And I suppose like, you know, like you said, there's so much that we could go into and it's not just about your nutrition. That's the first thing I want to say. So I'll talk mostly about nutrition because that's what I'm good at. I'm a dietitian, but it needs a whole lifestyle approach. So you need to be thinking about your diet. You need to be thinking about movement if that is safe and that's possible for you. You need to be thinking about your sleeping habits, your stress, your water intake, like all of those sorts of things. They absolutely come into the management of GD as well. In terms of your diet, it obviously has a really significant impact. We know that carbohydrates in particular raise blood sugar. So consuming carbs is going to have an impact on your blood sugar and to another extent, protein and fats will also impact blood sugar, but to a much smaller extent with a different kind of profile of how that does change blood sugar. But the key things that I would focus on if you really don't know where to start is first of all, like understanding what the different macronutrients are in your diet. So that is your carbs, your protein, and your fats. And get a sense, like I just said, of how they affect your blood sugar. So carbs is going to have the biggest effect, and then protein has a smaller effect, and fat has a minimal effect on blood sugar. So first of all, to understand where those nutrients show up in your diet. And then really trying to pair these together. And also, I suppose, 
it's hard to know what order to go in this, I suppose, because there's so many factors, but making sure that you're eating carbs in combination with protein and with fat, because carbs on their own are likely to raise your blood sugar and protein and fat can slow your overall digestion. So if we compare protein and healthy fats with your carbs, we're likely to get a much better looking glucose profile. And again, this is easier if you've got a visual, but rather than having like a really high spike in your blood sugar that occurs quite quickly, we're more likely to get a smaller rise that stays nice and sustained over time rather than a really rapid rise and fall, which we always call like a spike in blood sugar. We also want to be choosing carbohydrates that considered lower GI and GI refers to glycemic index, which is how quickly something does raise your blood sugar. So it's just a scale of like zero to a hundred. Something that's super sugary, like pure sugar is going to be a hundred. Something that's really got fiber and protein and things like that, that is slower to digest is going to be down closer to zero to 50. And that's like comparing, let's say white bread, which would be high GI to multigrain dense seeded bread, which would be a lower GI. So we want to be ideally choosing things that are towards that low GI end of the spectrum. And so that's generally going to be things that are minimally processed whole foods when you can see lots of like whole grains and seeds and things like that in there. And so that's one concept, but it's also like secondary to another concept called glycemic load. And I'm very aware that I'm just brushing over these things. So, you know, they have much more in depth. We could talk about it much more in depth, but glycemic load essentially refers to what I was saying before in terms of needing to pair your carbs with other sources of food like protein and healthy fats to slow the overall digestion and minimize the impact on blood sugar. So if we're choosing the lower GI foods and we're pairing it with things like protein and healthy fats, we're going to get a much better glucose profile. And the glycemic load is much more important because it puts things in context of your overall meal. Because if even if you had something that was high or sorry, low GI, like I said, a really dense multigrain seeded piece of bread, if you had the whole loaf of that bread, that's still going to raise your blood sugar pretty high. So we need to always be putting things in context and thinking about portion of that that you're having and what you're pairing it with. So we need appropriate portions and we need that pairing. So how this could look on your plate is trying to aim for about a quarter of your plate of carbohydrates, ideally those low GI carbs, half a plate of veggies, ideally. So we want to get lots of colors and all that fiber, which again, slows digestion and is really just good for your overall nutrient intake. About a quarter of your plate to be protein, ideally some sort of a lean protein, chicken, fish, whatever it's going to be, and some healthy fats alongside. So something like extra virgin olive oil and avocado, nuts and seeds, those sorts of foods. So we want to be getting a balance of all those macronutrients. We want them portioned correctly. We ideally want to be choosing the lower glycemic carbs. And I just want to say, because I know I've been saying like, keep your blood sugar low, I just want to like kind of pull myself up on there on my language because I don't want you to get the impression that always having lower blood sugar is better. So when I'm saying low, I'm talking about not exceeding the targets that you've been given for your blood sugar. That might differ from, you know, person to person. They're usually kept standard. But let's say your target post meals is 6.7, which is what we usually use in Australia, the two hours post meals. Having blood sugar after your meal that's like four that would be considered really low or even having blood sugar post meal that's like five is not necessarily better than having blood sugar post meal that's like six 
Okay, so it's not a case of lower is always better. I'm just talking about keeping blood sugar lower than those target thresholds. So there's no benefit necessarily to having really low or even flat lined blood sugar all the time. And that's something you might see popping up on social media at the moment. Oh my God. But you really still need to be eating adequately. And it's very normal and natural for blood sugar to have some rise and fall. So please don't be aiming for always just getting the lowest number possible. It's totally okay for it to be going up towards that target. Obviously, you don't want to be exceeding it, but you don't need to be thinking that you need to cut carbs, all that sort of stuff. So I hope that makes sense. I think the way that I always like to talk about it is within range. And yeah, like you said, lower isn't better. And we also have to normalize that most individuals before they get a diagnosis of GD, have zero visibility of what's happening to blood sugar levels. You and I don't know what our blood sugar is doing at this current point in time because we don't need to know. And so you've got this increased awareness. You're starting to understand these numbers. And of course, you're pregnant, you're vigilant, you want to do the best thing you can by you and your baby. And so it becomes this almost like this game of like, how can I get it down? How can I your blood sugar is meant to rise after you eat and it's meant to drop back down. The issue is, is if it's not coming back down, it's not coming back down quickly or, you know, sometimes you get a nosedive, it comes back down too quickly and you get a low blood sugar event. And so there's too much emphasis on social media about always having this like flatline blood glucose level. And I'm just like, you wouldn't say that about your pulse, would you? Oh, I just want my pulse to be the same all the time. Doesn't matter if I run up this hill or I don't. No, you would expect your pulse to increase and then you would expect it to come back down after you exercise. Yeah, like, I think that's that. exactly how you would expect it. If you flatline your pulse, you're dead. You don't want that. <laughs> so not that flatlining your blood glucose level equals death, but my point is is this is normal healthy physiology for things to shift around. That's how it's yeah. meant to be. It's just I now that you see it. Exercise is a great analogy for that because we could say like, okay, well, you're lifting a heavy weight and that's going to tear your muscle, right? And we could say in isolation, oh, my God, what a terrible thing. You can't go and do like weight training because that's going to tear your muscles. That's going to cause all this damage inside of your body. But we know that over time that's actually very beneficial and causes improvements in our health. And in some ways you could think about blood sugar the same. So you could say, oh, my God, blood sugar has gone a little bit higher than it was fasting So that must be a terrible thing. It's absolutely not. There's no detriment to it whatsoever. I've also done some digging into the research about this and there's no benefit to having like a lower HbA1c, which is sort of considered your average glucose across time and things like that. There's no beneficial to having a lower within normal range number for that sort of stuff. So just I hope that reassures people in some way too. And outside of target blood sugar event on a one-off isn't going to cause an issue immediately on the spot. And I think we're talking about chronic hyperglycemia, which means high blood sugar levels. If you're chronically out of range, that's when we start to be a little bit more concerned and start to think about, all right, is the dietary strategies and the lifestyle strategies where it should be? Do we need more medical support? What else should we be considering here? And there's a whole kind of care pathway that happens with gestational diabetes and diet and lifestyle is your first port of call. And a lot of people, that is more than sufficient for their management. And then there's also the medical route. And one is not, you know, you need to do the diet and lifestyle anyway, if you do the medical route, but 
going through the medical route is not failure either. Absolutely. You're literally replacing something that your body is struggling to either make or respond to. There is zero shame in that. We wouldn't. Especially for that fasting blood sugar level, which is really much less responsive to these lifestyle modifications than your post-meal blood sugars will be. And that because that fasting blood sugar level is really related to those placental hormones. So please keep that in mind. And like you said, it's really not a failure. It's not shameful if you need insulin to manage any part of your gestational diabetes journey or any type of medication. Like it's just, it's just part of it. And it's part of so many people's story and it doesn't, you know, necessarily like increase risk of anything or anything like that. It's just what you need to do. And a lot of people, once they actually start insulin, feel so much relief. They just feel so much more reassured, like they can take a breath, like stop feeling anxious and stressed every single day about it all and just be able to have a bit more leeway in their diet. And that's another thing I want to say too is like I really don't think that it's productive to restrict your diet in order to get quote-unquote better blood sugar levels because we've got – I always like to tell people like we've got two kind of competing priorities here. We need to be A, getting the nutrition that you and your baby need to be growing, keeping your nutrient stores nice and topped up and not getting depleted, making sure that your baby's getting everything that they need, not just for like, you know, bare minimum outcomes, like but to optimize their outcomes in their future life. And so we want to make sure that you're getting enough food and carbs in particular, I want to throw in there because it's easy to think, oh, I better just restrict my carbs, but we get better outcomes when you're including an adequate amount of carbs. And that's competing with the priority of keeping your blood sugar levels stable, right? And we can't really say that one of those things is more important than the other, but we've got more tools in our toolbox to be able to support your blood sugar levels if they are starting to go haywire and you're eating things that are really nutritious and adequate and supporting that growth and health of your baby. I hope the way I said that makes sense. But we don't want you to be compromising that priority of making sure that you're getting all the nutrition you need for the sake of getting lower blood sugar levels. You need to be balancing both of those priorities. And so sometimes that does mean you need a bit of help with gestational diabetes, but it doesn't mean cutting things out of your diet unnecessarily because we need to be appreciating both of those things and meeting both mm-hmm. of those goals. And yeah. I also completely agree with what you said about like, you know, a one-off spike is not the end of the world, especially if we can trace it back and we can say, right, well, you went out for dinner or whatever it was, or you had limited options, or for example, you did the oral glucose tolerance test. And we can say, well, that's clearly what caused that. And we will ideally not repeat that in the future. And the rest of the time, things are looking good. And I think that sometimes We can get too fixated on specific numbers and like exactly what the number says rather than looking at the bigger picture and the overall trends. And I see that quite a lot of like, oh, well, if I, especially with fasting, when you could say like, if I test like five minutes before I got a lower number and then I was like 0.1 over when I tested again. And it's like, well, or we talk about like, you know, different timeframes like I wasn't quite at the two hour mark and so I tested it like one hour 50 minutes and it was this but then at two hours yeah. 10 minutes, it was this and it's like well it's not important what those like mm. minuscule details are we need to look at the bigger picture of what's going on and like okay mm-hmm. well is your blood sugar generally coming back to range or is it not and that's mm-hmm. the main thing your care providers are looking for rather than thinking oh she tested it 
one hour, 47 minutes. And so that's going to be inaccurate. Like that's absolutely not, not, I don't know if that made sense. What I just said, hopefully that came across. Like I always say to people, stop focusing on the single grain of sand on the beach and start zooming out and actually look at the whole shoreline because the single grain of sand might be pretty, but the whole beach is much nicer to look at. And good care providers are going to be looking at the beach. They're going to look at patterns. They're going to look at trends. They're going to look at things over time. They're going to be looking at, is this an explainable reason? Like, oh, you went out and ate a three-course meal. You don't do that at home. All right, that makes sense. Or, oh, you didn't exercise that day. You usually exercise quite a lot. Okay, that makes sense. Or, oh, you had a terrible night's sleep because you have a toddler and it came into your room and jumped on your head for you know, half an hour in the middle of the night and now your sleep's disrupted. Now your insulin and your blood glucose is all over the map. Okay, explainable reason, that's a one-off. We're not going to come down on you on that. We're looking at trends and things that are starting to escape the management that we've got in place that we need to escalate things. That's what we're looking for. So I think GD especially, people feel really fearful that their doctor, their endocrinologist, their OB, their dietitian, their diabetes educator is going to come down on them and punish them or scold them. (laughs) We're not disciplinarians. We're not here to like slap you on the back of the wrist. We're here to like make sure that you're managing mentally, you're managing physically, that baby's good, that you're good, and we're just trying to protect you. We're not here to like come down on you and be this authoritative figure of, of, you know, oh, bad job. Like we're not going to do that. And I think people have that perspective, particularly with GD, that that is what it will be like, but it's not the case at all. So true. And so true with dietitians as well. We're not the food police. I've never met a dietitian that got into nutrition because we hate food, right? Like we're not the food police and going to tell you like you're doing it all wrong or that you need to cut everything out. That's, you know, that's never the mm-hmm. objective. So keep that in mind too. Just briefly, what are some of the risks to both mum and bub when GD is not well managed, whether that be I'm choosing not to acknowledge this diagnosis and I'm just going to keep going on my way, which I have personally seen more of recently, which scares me slightly. But, you know, if you just go, oh, oh, well, or you're not managing, but you're also not putting your hand up and saying, I'm not managing because you've got fear of maybe insulin or something like that. I don't like talking about scary stuff, but what's the risks? Like, yeah, I don't, like, I don't like scaring people either because, like, you know, you've got to preface this with the reality is, like, that if you are managing things well and you are getting appropriate support and treatment, then we can minimise all of these risks. And it's very unlikely that some of these more extreme things are going to happen. And also, you know, I don't want to trigger anybody by saying any of the words that I'm going to say, but I think it's important to recognise that, you know, at the very extreme, if GD is not well managed, then we have risks of things like stillbirth. And that's huge. But then, like I said, that's pretty rare. That's most likely not going to happen because it's really well picked up, really well managed. You've got lots of support around you if you choose to use it. Then we have things like preeclampsia. You've got greater risk of preeclampsia during your pregnancy, premature birth, complications at delivery. So 
I guess I suppose one of the main things that is that if your baby starts measuring large, which can happen if they're getting excess sugar shunted to them through the placenta, if your blood sugar is staying high chronically, then there might be complications at your delivery like birth trauma, you know, bub not being able to come out very well or easily and then potentially needing a c-section might be more likely to be induced as well if that was the case and then that can obviously be associated with that whole cascade of interventions that a lot of people are worried about that might end up in an emergency c-section for bub after birth there is a risk of hypoglycemia which i know can sound confusing when you first hear about this but your baby might have low blood sugar after being born because if you think about it during the pregnancy, if your blood sugar is always high and the baby's always being fed more blood sugar than, sorry, more sugar than it necessarily needs, then its own pancreas is going to be overproducing insulin to keep its own levels stable. So if your baby is then born and it's not getting that kind of drip feeding of sugar from you anymore, your baby's probably still going to be producing the amount of insulin it was producing whilst it was inside you, which means that its sugar might drop too low because there's too much insulin in its system. And that usually will resolve. For some people, it won't resolve for a while and your baby will need like more consistent monitoring around its blood sugar and more consistent top-up feeds potentially. For a lot of people, baby will be checked after giving birth and hopefully they'll be fine. They'll probably be checked a few times for their blood sugar levels. And if they're fine, you're on your way. If they're not fine, you might need to be doing more feeds or like I said, they might need to be more intensive monitoring or stay in hospital. For you, generally GD goes away straight after birth. So once the placenta has been delivered and those hormones are out of your system, then usually blood sugar will return back to normal with a giant caveat that you're at much higher risk of developing type 2 diabetes down the track. So that's actually like what the latest that I've read is one in seven women who've had GD will develop type 2 diabetes. And obviously, again, I don't want to scare you with that stat and you can minimize your risk if you continue to adopt like healthy principles for your diet and your lifestyle after your pregnancy. But 50 to 60% of women will develop type 2 diabetes within 10 to 20 years. 5% will develop it within six months of giving birth and 60% will develop it within 20 years. So they're pretty high stats. So if you want to minimize your risk, like I said, I really recommend continuing to really look after your diet and your lifestyle. And generally what will happen after you've delivered is that your sugar will potentially be checked depending on your care system. If it's fine, you're on your way. And then at six weeks, it's really recommended that you get another check and oral glucose tolerance test, ideally, to see what your blood sugar is doing and whether you've got insulin resistance because, you know, the last thing you want is to develop type 2 diabetes and have this ongoing forever and to, you know, it's best if you can do something about it before that. So really important to get that follow-up screening. You're also alongside that at higher risk of cardiovascular disease and other metabolic disorders down the track. And that all kind of ties in together. And same with your baby. There's some schools of thought that your baby is then predisposed to having more metabolic disease later in life. So similar things. So potentially developing stuff like type 2 diabetes. 
but that's not a given. And I, I really don't want you to take away from this, like, oh my gosh, I've got GD and my baby's now going to get diabetes. That's absolutely not what I'm saying, but that's a risk. And I also just want to highlight that another risk is for you, depression and possible disordered eating. We know that there's higher rates of antenatal depression amongst women with GD. And that's a really like significant thing that is sometimes overlooked. And I'm not the best person to talk about it because I'm a dietitian. I'm not a psychologist, but please know that there's support available for that as well. And that you're not alone and you're not, there's nothing wrong with you. If you're feeling, you know, like your mood is really low again, like you're grieving your pregnancy in some way, you're struggling to cope with the diagnosis and everything else that's probably going on with your life. It's not just that you have GD and that's your primary focus. You know, there's all the other things that are associated with pregnancy, potentially symptoms, whatever else is going on in your life. So very valid if you're feeling really low and that's unusual for you and your mood is just really not where it should be, please reach out and get support and tied in with that. I also want to say like disordered eating, whether or not you have a history of an eating disorder, that's something that can be really, it can raise its head during pregnancy in general and during GD where you are paying so much more attention to your diet, hyper fixating on things which sometimes just isn't productive for our mindset around food and eating in our bodies. So again, that's so valid if that's what you're experiencing, but please reach out. And I like, you know, I see that more than I would like of, you know, getting on a call with somebody and them saying, yeah, and I'm, I'm feeling really weird about food or I've previously had whatever disorder, like a restrictive eating disorder or whatever it might be, even binge eating disorder and that being brought a bit more to a head during the diagnosis. So that's really tricky to navigate on your own. And I just want to let you know you're not alone if you're experiencing that. And it's such a valid risk that we maybe don't highlight quite as much. So, yeah, tricky stuff. Yep, lots of stuff that it brings up. It's a bit of an unearthing, the old GD, isn't it? All right, who should be on the GD management team? OBS, a dietitian. <laughs> who else, in it, if you could pick your top? professionals to support you 